So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Welcome to today's episode from Mandela to Mars, Lessons from Isolation. A few weeks ago, I recorded the webinar and podcast, The Great Pause, in an attempt to offer some support and strategies for us adapting to this massive challenge and to cope with the pressures that we're all facing with remote working and the COVID-19 situation. I just wanted to say an initial thank you to anyone who shared that link to the podcast or left a rating on Apple or Spotify. I really appreciate your help in trying to spread the word and get these strategies out to the people in your network who might benefit. So thank you so much to everyone that did that. I'm recording this episode towards the back end of April and many governments are extended the lockdown for another three to four weeks with the dream of returning to normality and traveling internationally and getting back to our working commute seeming a long way off. So I thought I'd dig into our Performance Zone library again for you. This is our digital platform, which gives our clients access to all of the interviews that myself and my team at Sporting Edge have conducted over the last decade. I think there's about 100 incredible people that we've interviewed in that time. Today, I'll be searching through the various categories of leadership and personal resilience for some more human stories of coping with extreme adversity that might help you through this truly remarkable time. What I'm going to share is some excerpts from three interviews which I carried out as part of our resilience research, and they focus on one central theme, how we can cope in isolation. Without optimism, you know, if you go into prison with a negative state of mind, it can be hell. That was the voice of one of the special guests in today's show speaking about his personal experiences of being isolated in prison on Robin Island alongside the great Nelson Mandela for 26 years. I know so many people around the world are experiencing huge disruption and frustration at the moment. Maybe you've had this terrible virus yourself or you've lost a loved one. Well, my heart goes out to you. Wherever you are listening to this, I hope this episode gives you some comfort. Back in 2008, I started to work with the South African cricket team after retiring and studying my master's degree in sports psychology to help them on the coaching and psychology side. It was a massively fulfilling chapter of my career and my life because this team of incredibly talented individuals was so diverse with, I think, seven different cultures in that team. And they galvanized together around this central dream of being the number one test team in the world rankings. And they did that. So it was an incredible experience to be part of that coaching team. And one of the themes that we were looking to bolster at the time was resilience. And as ever, coaches are always looking for new ways to bring these principles to life. And the team management at the time had access to a very special man called Ahmed Katrada who came to share his story with the players in one of our camps. I remember that few hours vividly and it had a profound effect on the players, just as it did with me. This wasn't just any old story loaded with theories and niceties. This was a compelling, gritty human story 
of a man who'd been in prison with Nelson Mandela for 26 years. Ahmed Katrada sadly passed away in March 2016, aged 87, but his insights and legacy will last forever. How many people can really say that they changed the world? Well, this group of eight men did just that, and we're about to hear how. To set the scene, Ahmed Katrada was a student activist protesting against the apartheid regime and joined Nelson Mandela and the ANC in many of the meetings and protests. When the ANC was banned, the group of eight senior leaders met in a secret farmstead and got captured just outside Johannesburg in the suburb of Rivonia. They were sent to court in what was dubbed the Rivonia trial, and they feared the death sentence. Katrada was told by his lawyers that there was little or no evidence to tie him to any of the major misdemeanors and that he could probably walk free. But instead, fearing that Nelson Mandela, if he was left alone or in a small group, would probably be killed by his captors. So he stood by his beliefs and his fellow protesters and spent 26 years in prison on Robin Island in Cape Town. After initially meeting Ahmed Katrada as part of my work with South Africa, I had the chance to meet him again one-to-one in London in 2015 to hear his story, and it was an absolute pleasure. So I'm going to share some insights from his interview on our Performance Zone library with you. In this first insight, he shares the story around the personal choice he had and why he chose to commit alongside his seven comrades. I was part of a team. So you have that in mind, you have that responsibility to stick to with your team. You know, prison and the laws at the time, the 90-day detention act, and Robben Island and other prisons of our white colleagues was meant to destroy us, our spirits. They set out to do that. Uh, under the 90-day act, when no visitors, no lawyers, no newspapers, no book, the only visitors you get are the police to break you down. Well, it sounds very brave now, but it was a basic thing of breaking ranks. Uh, The evidence against me was very little, and uh, our lawyers, especially Brown Fisher, respected in England and all over, which is political. And he came to see me after our sentence. And he talked to me as a lawyer first, hoping that I'll give a political answer. (laughs) So as a lawyer, he had to tell me that the evidence against me was very little and had every chance of either getting off completely or reduced Uh, court case. As a politician, he had hoped to get the answer that I gave, that I don't want to break ranks. No matter what happens, even if the evidence was small, tiny against me, I don't want to break ranks. I'll do, I mean, I'll uh, be prepared to do what will fall in with whatever happens to the rest. Once you're committed to something, you don't commit commit to yourself wildly. It is expected that you are committing yourself knowing what the consequences are going to be. Uh, That is the expectation, of course. And uh, with that in mind, it, it helps a great deal to keep up your, your spirit. Because you know uh, what you have committed to. How remarkable was that? Can you imagine having the chance to walk free and still walking alongside your team, as he calls it, into prison, seemingly for the rest of your life? Those 90-day periods of detention and isolation to break you down with family letters being withheld as a bargaining tool or rations and spending hours after hours breaking rocks with a pick and a shovel day after day. 
This adversity is incredible, but I love that comment. You should never commit wildly, but commit knowing what the consequences will be. This is not a flippant decision that was made. It was this deep burning conviction and purpose in his heart, which fueled him through the darkest times in the years ahead. He knew what he was doing was right. And it was that unshakable belief which helped him to overcome whatever his jailers would throw at him. He wasn't alone in being values and purpose driven because we're going to hear now from one of his fellow comrades. This is Dennis Goldberg, who again shared some incredible stories with me when I met him in London. This ANC leadership group was quite diverse culturally. So Ahmed Katrada was of Indian heritage and Dennis Goldberg was born to Jewish parents from England and Nelson Mandela and several other of the ANC eight were causa. So imagine Dennis Goldberg, a white man, protesting against the white Afrikaners when he himself had all those privileges. In his 2016 book, A Life for Freedom, he explained that the night before the Rivonia trial, their lawyers had said that their fate was looking particularly bad with the death by hanging verdict as the most likely. So Dennis Goldberg offered to take complete blame and suggested that many of the crimes were done by him, but the others refused his offer. The next day, the judge declined the death sentence and gave all eight of these ANC leaders four life sentences each. Dennis Goldberg was 31 at the time. This clip from his longer interview provides a window into his motivation, a motivation which helped him to endure over 22 years in jail and missing some major life events, including the death of his parents. This is Dennis Goldberg's purpose. I've lived my life in the belief that life has meaning through service to others. It's not about oneself, but it's using oneself and one's abilities to benefit others. I do have to talk some politics. I got involved in politics in South Africa, which led me to four life sentences and ultimately 22 years in prison because I did not want to be one of those responsible for the brutality of the apartheid system. The purpose in life is to make life better for other people, not my people or your people, but all people, to the extent that one can. The cost to one, well, more recently we have this African term of African humanism the word is Ubuntu. Archbishop Desmond Tutu utters it often. And really it says, I am who I am only through others. I live in a society. I can't be wolf all alone. And we live in a wolf all alone society where our media promote bling and uh, celebrity status not on the basis of what you do, but of what you look like, are you skinny enough to be a model, and so on. People who are rich at the expense of others and become famous and lords and ladies and what have you, which is the opposite of everything I believed in. Um, I was pleased many years after I was free again to be given a book by an Austrian psychiatrist psychotherapist um, Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. And the search for meaning is, how do I be of service? His experience in a Nazi concentration camp for four years, uh, which led him to his theory, was that those who felt their lives were useless, that it was a waste of time, that survival was meaningless, died very quickly. Those who felt they had a purpose in life seemed to be stronger and survive. I can't replicate it, but that was my experience in prison. Uh, those who were strong supported those who were not so strong. And all of us went through periods of depression, of exhaustion, 
and being buoyed up by the others. Um, you don't do it on your own. You can do if you have to, but so the idea of service to others. You're in a team. How do I best contribute to the team? It's not about me being the virtuoso, the one who always scares, scores multiple centuries. It's how do you encourage other players? You consciously don't run somebody out so that you can get your hundreds run, or 50, whatever it is. Um, because the team is more important than oneself. We had some lovely discussions about cricket after that, and Dennis is a real lover of the game. But how incredible this philosophy, this Swahili philosophy of Ubuntu, this sense that we're not measured by our business card or our house or our car, but by the impact we have on others because we're part of an interconnected community and society. It's the exact opposite of this short-term, self-focused, individualistic culture which modern society seems to celebrate. Who's the winner? What do they earn? What have they got? This philosophy of Ubuntu is all about what do we give? How do we help other people thrive? And here again, we've got a passionately held purpose sitting at the core of Dennis Goldberg's character to live a life of service for others. After all, this is a guy in prison with a handful of key people committed to end apartheid for all of South Africa's 50 million people forever. I mean, what an incredible cause. I wonder as we re-emerge from the COVID-19 crisis, if you and I will make any different choices for our, ourselves, our families, our communities and our businesses to serve others more widely as a definition of success rather than just thinking about our own achievements? And will we define a longer term intent that steers us and guides us to each of those daily steps along the way? This great pause gives us the time to reflect on what's really, really important to us. But will we move from reflection to action? So action is the key. And while having a guiding dream or goal is clearly critical to resilience, we also need a more tangible and immediate coping mechanism. I was interested to see how Dennis coped on a daily basis in those dark moments when his hope was running thin and his freedom was still decades away. This is what he said. Low moments. Wondering about your children, wondering about your wife, uh, wanting her to be there when you come out, if ever you come out, but having said you're in the prime of your life, you must live your life to the fullest. In other words, it's not a Victorian attitude of a, a sexual loyalty when you know it's not going to happen anyway. And if you were the one outside, you wouldn't be celibate, whatever happened. So all of these things have their effects. A letter that doesn't arrive, knowledge of illness, and just sheer exhaustion from battling to uphold your dignity and demand the respect of your jailers who are trying to break you. Uh, as time goes by, uh, the pit of depression gets deeper. You struggle up, you get your fingers over the edge of the pit, metaphorically speaking, and somebody comes along and stamps on them. But you have to persist because you're not going to let them defeat you. You're not going to be defeated because that is to allow those with the meanest, most selfish and self-serving attitudes to triumph. Uh, that's resilience. The determination not to be defeated. Um, and I think that's important. You know the film Invictus uh, uses a poem, uh, I am the, uh, Nelson Mandela allegedly gave it to Francois Pinar, the South African rugby captain, Springbok captain. According to Wikipedia, that's not the poem or the words that he actually gave to Francois Pinard. 
the author of the book on which the film was based decided that was a better, more dramatic poem. Actually, the words that Mandela gave to Pinar were from the early 20th century uh, American president Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, the speech is called The Man in the Arena because it is the man in the arena who gets on the bucking bronco and stays on as long as he can and even if he gets thrown off he gets back on again. It's the man who gets covered in dust, it's the man who sweats, it's the man who tries and fails and in failing learns. Um, that is important. Not those who sit and talk and say, if only, but get in and do. It's a bit of an anti-intellectual speech, but nevertheless, it's the being involved and engaged that's important. And it's out of remembering the engagement, the engagement, that one triumphs. And you have to triumph over yourself and your circumstances, and you have to help others. Me, I made the Christmas tree every year in prison. Uh, I made sure that everybody got birthday cards and Christmas cards from everybody else. Because you had to build unity. You're not just on your own. It's your birthday, your wife's, your wedding anniversary. Somebody has to remember it and be there for you. Uh, it was about solidarity. It was about serving others. Uh, that was my contribution to leadership. There were a few other things. but So again, you can hear that defiance and conviction in his voice. He was not going to be swayed away from what he really believed was right. He was not going to be beaten. And it was that daily grit and determination to stay on track, which he measured himself by, just like in the poem, getting stuck into action, doing the right thing on a difficult day, and eventually those days added up over the years to deliver his dream of freedom and a future of liberation from the apartheid regime for his beloved South Africa. Bringing us back to the skills needed to thrive in isolation is this sense of optimism. And I don't know if you've had the chance to read the classic book by Jim Collins called Good to Great. But there's a section in there about the Stockdale Paradox. And I spoke at a corporate conference a few months ago on resilience through change, and this really resonated with the audience. This is the story of Admiral James Stockdale from the US Navy, who was captured and spent seven years in a Vietnamese prisoner of war camp. And he said that it wasn't the optimists that survived that terrible time, because they were hoping that they'd be released at Easter, in the summer, by Christmas, by their birthday, and they were broken-hearted every time that that didn't come true. And it also wasn't the pessimists who survived because they couldn't see the point. They knew they were going to die in there and they were proved right. It was the people who had the discipline to face the brutal reality of their current situation, but also knew that they would prevail in the end. He himself endured torture but knew that if he could get through those periods, it would be a defining time in his life. And after his release, he actually said that this was an experience that he would never trade. So facing up to the brutal reality of the current situation, yet seeing it being a powerful experience for our transformational resilience bank account for the future, it's incredibly powerful. So for Stockdale, the antidote to isolation and adversity was this potent cocktail of realism and optimism. So let's take a step back now and use the search categories in our performance zone library to select another video insight from resilience. But also this looks at a fascinating area of coping in isolation. Professor Gro Sandal from Bergen University in Norway has researched the psychology of extreme environments for many years and has studied the astronauts and cosmonauts on the International Space Station. So talk about feeling disconnected from the real world. Here's Gro explaining how the astronauts have to combat boredom on their long missions, such as the ones that are being planned at the moment to Mars. It's predicted that these would take nine months of travel time each way and call for around 500 days on Mars itself. 
so an incredibly long time. And while many of NASA's engineers are working out how to get the rockets to give the spacecraft enough physical and chemical energy to make the journey, the psychologists are considering how to prepare the astronauts to have enough emotional energy to make the trip, with stress and boredom being the key threats. Yeah, it's very interesting because uh, if we look at uh, the psychological challenges related to a Mars mission, uh, boredom and monotony is going to be one of the biggest psychological issues. So, and that's also an issue of crews on board the space station who stay there maybe for six months or, or longer. Uh, there is a danger, of course, with boredom. You can uh, you become less alert, and which may increase your reaction time if something critical occurs. So that makes it extremely important to cope with boredom and monotony. Uh, what we have seen uh, and, uh, is uh, that for crews uh, which we have confined on Earth, for example the Mars 500, they were extremely creative in terms of uh, trying to break monotony. Uh, they had uh, all kinds of celebrations, which kind of was a kind of uh, vitamin to them. They celebrated just everything, um, uh, the, like Chinese New Year, Russian New Year, uh, European New Year all kind of birthdays, uh, weddings of uh, people in their family, and even Putin's birthday. Uh, and they did that very purposely, uh, because they wanted to break monotony. And uh, so to keep alert in that way is important. But besides the things they did as a crew, um, they also have individual missions, which they were devoted to. And we know that also from the space station. Uh, for example, your own uh, astronaut Tim Peaks, he ran a marathon uh, up at the space station, and that was uh, one of his big projects. Other astronauts have uh, made uh, books, or they have uh, been uh, devoting much of their time to educational uh, outreach. Um, and uh, so they have different personal projects. And this individually tailored, uh, activities are very important to keep each one engaged and alert. That's important for the ability to handle a critical situation. But more generally, it's also extremely important with regard to maintaining psychological health. So this ability to control their attention is key rather than drifting around in zero gravity. They use these personal projects like Tim Peake's Marathon um, some of the astronauts teaching over the web to coach children around the world, maybe take photographs or do specialist experiments to channel their motivation. Imagine no natural light, no night and day rhythm, sensory deprivation with no sound. So we have to build structure. The astronauts are building structure and time routines. They're writing a daily schedule with priorities and to-do lists with their time allocated in blocks to give them this sense of structure and routine and this daily purpose when it seems so irrelevant. And I love that idea of celebration being a vitamin for the soul, proactively finding things between the astronauts to celebrate together and count down to. I hope you're enjoying today's show. I just wanted to take a moment to introduce you to Sporting Edge's Members Club. It's an amazing opportunity to join our network of high performers from around the world. Over the last decade, we've created this pioneering library of video insights and performance strategies from the world's best thinkers and performers. But we've never really had a solution that gives you direct access to this whenever you need it. So when you become a member, you'll be able to access this incredible toolkit to boost your mindset and career on demand on any device. You'll hear from neuroscientists helping you to understand how your brain works. You'll be able to watch Olympians giving you inspirational stories and strategies to boost your resilience and rekindle your motivation. And you'll also hear from communication gurus as well as experts in business strategy and the future of the workplace. We'll introduce you to new experts every month and invite you to join exclusive online mastermind sessions with world-class coaches and performance experts. So here's how you can find out more. During times of uncertainty and pressure, your mindset will be the key to your success. 
Sporting Edge members have unlimited personal access to hundreds of video insights and performance strategies to accelerate their personal and professional success. This is your chance to get powerful weekly micro-lessons from the world's best thinkers and performers from elite sport. You'll be able to connect with a global network of entrepreneurs, coaches and senior executives on webinars, discussion forums and events. Become a Sporting Edge member and get access to the world's best coaches on demand. For more information, visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com. So if you're a coach, entrepreneur or executive looking for strategies to navigate the future with confidence, come and learn more about Sporting Edge Members Club at sportingedge.com forward slash membership. I look forward to welcoming you to our high performance network. So what can you celebrate? Maybe it's your friend's birthdays, your parents' wedding anniversary, maybe even Vladimir Putin's birthday, which I look for incidentally, and it's the 7th of October. And if we're still locked down by then, we might need more than a vodka to get us through it. But um, put that in your calendar just in case. So we've heard about how the astronauts take a break and, and break their boredom with routines and personal projects and rituals and how exercise is critical to keeping them healthy and alert. And I would absolutely say that we all need to remain energetic because it, it's definitely a great way to burn off our frustrations. For me personally, I'm finding running being a brilliant transition between my home and work life, even though they're both happening in the same place at the moment. And I think if we can do something for ourselves that we feel gives us energy or we feel proud of something that we've ticked off our to-do list before the day starts, then that really helps us. It's a little bit like when we Remember those aeroplanes we used to go on in international travel? Well, when the aerostesses and stewards said, you know, put your oxygen mask on first and then look after the children second, it's the same. I think if we do something for ourselves first, this isn't selfish. This is energizing for ourselves, going for a run, ticking off that element of the to-do list. And that gives us that satisfaction and more energy to be patient and tolerant when the kids come crashing into the kitchen. So have a think about what you can do to set yourself up for success so that you're one nil up before the day starts. But to be honest, being in a confined space with your closest family isn't always a fairy tale. I'll just check my wife isn't peering over to listen as I record this, but no matter how close you are, interpersonal tensions rise in confined spaces because we're all being tested to adapt to a new context, a new working rhythm, having different people around us at this close proximity for 24-7. So I was really interested in Grow's insights in our high-performing team section around conflict and to hear how the astronauts deal with this conflict in the most extreme of lockdown situations. Of course, the minor conflict, once you get hypersensitive in relation to others, and that may easily happen if you are confined in a small space together, then uh, we all very often see, and almost always see, that people become very irrit easily irritable. And, uh, and you know, when these minor uh, reactions come, then a good strategy may actually be to withdraw from the situation you learn a different way of coping with it. You absorb yourself in other activities so that you don't actually go and discuss issues which are quite minor and which may escalate conflicts more seriously. But of course, when, when bigger, more essential problems, more performance-relevant problems occur, actually to teach people how to communicate it and also to kind of give people the assurance that it's okay to come forward with the conflicts. Uh, that's extremely important. Uh, because we know, uh, in particular in this confined setting, you, the interdependence means that conflicts, as compared to normal life, has a much more stronger effect on you. And that makes it extremely important to deal with it. What we often see, by the way, is that when conflicts are not communicated, they are still channeled or they are still ventilated. 
And uh, sometimes we see this uh, scapegoating of one individual who gets the blame for whatever. And a lot of aggression and irritation is directed towards this single poor person who we know then, of course, will be very, very vulnerable to uh, psychological problems and health problems. Or in space, it has also been observed a tendency of crews to display, displace uh, ag aggression towards uh, mission control. So some of the tension which has been observed over time between crews and mission control has been interpreted as a displacement of tension. Again, it's really interesting that this it's very natural to feel the tension rising as we live 24-7 in, in people's space. So this small frustration, like the way somebody holds their fork at the dinner table, we can probably park and move into this quieter space or this designated solo space or sulking space, if you like, and maybe take your frustration out on a thousand piece jigsaw quietly in the corner. Having this escape route is really advisable So we, when we need a quick time out. So I'd definitely try and allocate that or identify that for yourself in your own house if you possibly can. I also think letting the other person or people in the house know that you're running a little bit low on emotional tolerance on a particular day is important just to signal it. So maybe as you meet for breakfast, just say, oh, I'm just going to let you know I'm four out of ten today. So cut me a bit of slack. And this is where we need to work as a team, where the people who wake up bouncy and energetic on a particular day are really trying to help the other people rather than knock them down and, and belittle them. So if we do get um, frustration around this interdependency, then this is where we need to help each other out and, and get the best out of each other. So it may be that some of the tasks you can't do alone and you need to work together and the frustrations that build around those joint tasks, maybe it's homeschooling for parents or setting ground rules around discipline, you have to be on the same page. So maybe that's where we put that task or that project or that particular element at the centre of the discussion rather than it being about me versus you. It can't be a personal dig. It has to be about the overall team plan of how we're going to get through this and those compromises and robust discussions that you need to make it work. And the last thing we need to do in adding to this tough situation is that the last thing we need is feeling like we've got enemies in our own house. So maybe this situation gives us a chance to listen more deeply and to build those bridges uh, that may have been eroded in the past. You know, we don't want to have the scapegoat or the person that's getting the jokes pointed at them all the time through this period of isolation. Otherwise, we're going to do some damage to them because they've got no escape. They've got no routine to go back to. They've got no friends to go and have fun with. So we need to think about the environment we're creating within our homes and making sure that wherever possible, we're trying to help people to get through this as a team just like those A and C members did for all those years in prison. So I think this idea about taking responsibility for our social group is important for us. We shouldn't have this social pecking order uh, and we shouldn't take out our frustration on our own mission control, as, as Gro spoke about, but thinking as ourselves as a, a social group and not using our, our words as a weapon but actually taking responsibility for the mental health and the well-being of those around us so that we build this sense of community and come out stronger on the other side. So Dennis Goldberg also talks about the role of humour in breaking monotony. So I guess this is a key part of dealing with tension. Let's hear what Dennis has to say. <laughs> humour is one of my stock-in-trade defences against pain, emotional pain, and uh, also protection against my own absurdities, to be able to laugh at myself, but also to be able to laugh at officials who hate being laughed at. And they get to understand that uh, they've been absurd. Humor is, I think, tremendously important. And also when somebody does something stupid is to make a joke of it. 
and you have to laugh at each other and, and mock each other, I believe. I use it all the time. So again, some fun and laughter is a great way to diffuse tension or to recode a mistake or a pressure moment, as long as no one gets hurt emotionally in that process. When was the last time you had a proper laugh with one of your family or friends? There are so many great gifts and images and videos going around the internet at the moment. So I'm sure you'll be on one of those groups, but maybe there's a chance to watch your favourite comedian on the TV on a recorded show or maybe there's a chance to phone one of your old friends that you've not been in touch with for a while I did it the other night and had had great fun and that deep belly laughter is a great way to lift your spirit so I think humor plays a vital role as well as optimism in getting through adverse times and reading a, a recent research paper on coping strategies in these so-called ICE environments. The ICE stands for isolated, confined and extreme. Um, and this paper was by Nathan Smith, one of our colleagues and, and associates at Sporting Edge and, and Emma Barrett, um, showcasing some of these coping strategies were um, moving from this emotional catastrophizing where people worry about the long term consequences of what's going on moving to more of a rational risk assessment of, well, what's really going on? Let's break this down into smaller chunks. And what can I do to get in control of some of these situations so that, you know, that that end extreme doesn't happen? And journaling we see in some of these extreme environments is a great way to download the emotions in your mind, swimming around or swirling around and putting them down on paper because, we have to distill them. We have to rationalize them to do that. And it might also be fascinating as a view back on our lives in this period to read those journals and see how we coped and see how we were thinking and what our relationships were like, because this is a unique period in our history. Now, this research also talks about in the shorter term, having this self-talk and visualization of being able to see yourself navigating challenging periods and, and coming out the other side. And also how people on Arctic expeditions or, or whatever it might be in the research using cooking or learning new skills as coping mechanisms, because that's a really good way to spend the time and invest some of your creative energy in, in doing that. So I know in our house, there's been a lot of baking going on, which is not great for our um, waistlines, but definitely a very productive use of the time for the kids. And also staying connected via technology. I know many of you will be even listening to this. You're staying connected, but, um, you know, on WhatsApp or, or house party or whatever it might be, staying connected to your friends as a regular routine is a great way to make sure you feel part of a community. And that stays, even though it's not face to face, but you're, you're replicating it in the best way possible. So the role of leadership is also absolutely critical here. And this insight from Ahmed Katrada shows why Nelson Mandela had such loyal followers. And it provides a hint as to how great leaders respond to adversity. Let's go back to Ahmed Katrada's insights now about that incredible period of history. His great strength was leadership, courage, and lead by example. In prison, for instance, the ultimate protest is through hunger strikes. Now, he was suffering from high blood pressure, as all four of our leaders were. And he could have easily be exempted. He refused. On health grounds, uh, he could have easily uh, taken advantage of this. He refused. Hunger strikes are, are, are the ultimate form. And uh, he refused to be exempted. Took part in every hunger strike. So did Walter Zulu. So every protest action, pick and shower work, which we, none of us had done in our lives. Again, they could have been, because of age and high blood pressure, could have been exempted. Mm. 13 years that we did pick and shovel work, it was hard work at the beginning. I refused to, to ask for exemption. So leading by example, that, that was what we learned 
from our leadership in prison. So just as Ahmed Katrada recalls there this ability for leaders to show selflessness in the face of adversity, this was a huge inspiration for the rest of the inmates in Robin Island. And as Dennis Goldberg now recounts the same message in this powerful story about Nelson Mandela. The great Nelson Mandela, a comrade with some uh, bug who's vomiting and has diarrhea, and Nelson Mandela nurses him and cleans up it and cleans his clothes and washes his clothes. I've done the same, but I'm not Nelson Mandela. And amongst his prison mates, there was tremendous respect because he didn't stand back and say, I'm Nelson Mandela, I don't do that, you do it. He always led from the front. He never said, take up arms and I will order you. He was up front. And there are times when you simply have to lead and stand by principle. So we can't compare our current context to being in prison in Robin Island, but maybe as leaders we can reflect on how we use our authority. With virtual meetings, there's less power dressing and less dominant body language and maybe more equal talk time in our online meetings. The hierarchy might have been flattened as we're all in this together. And maybe this lesson for our alpha leaders is the need to lead through influence and not through dominance, to be respected for the sacrifice and commitment rather than being feared by the rest of our group by using our power. So this period gives us all the time to reflect and emerge making different choices about our life and our leadership and our businesses. But another key insight from the interview with Ahmed Katrada shows us the power of optimism in helping people to overcome adversity. He tells this powerful story of the prisoners being dropped off on Robin Island, this remote island, in an incredibly austere place. So there is, as you talked about, the, this block of concrete uh, on the way to the Penguin Walk on Robin Island. And where they, uh, on one of those blocks, uh, someone had described when it was wet, ANC is sure of victory, August 1967, I think. Now the 60s were very bad, in jail and outside of jail. But that was indicative of the spirit, the optimism. Without optimism, you know, if you go into prison with a negative state of mind, it can be hell. There's something that appeals to me so strongly in that insight. Here we have a group of men, must be incredibly scared, with multiple life sentences shipped out onto this remote island off the coast of Cape Town, surrounded by shark-infested waters. And one of the prisoners jumps off the boat, down off the jetty, and inscribes into the wet concrete, we are sure to win. Imagine that defiance, imagine that belief and that optimism. And 20 odd years later, the same men walk past that same block of concrete, that same message that had endured the rain and the wind, that they'd endured their hardship inside the prison. And they smiled and nodded this time with no handcuffs as free men. It's this optimism for a brighter future which lies at the heart of resilience. We will get through this, whatever it takes. So let me just summarise some of the fascinating insights from today's episode. We heard to begin with from Ahmed Katrada about being part of a team and not making that commitment wildly, but with his full conviction. Dennis Goldberg then introduced the theme of Ubuntu, judging ourselves not just by our fame and fortune, but that fundamental impact that we have on others. That balance of a long-term dream or aspiration is great, but judging ourselves by being in the arena and battling to do the right thing on a difficult day. It seems so fitting with the frontline health workers at the moment all around the world, putting others first getting stuck into their work in the arena, as Theodore Roosevelt's poem vividly describes. We heard from Gro Sandal explaining that the astronauts have structured routines and projects to replicate the day and night cycle 
and they need to stay energetic and break boredom purposefully as part of their routine. She also spoke about conflict rising in these confined spaces. So knowing when to migrate into a personal space to escape or listen to music and when to tackle those shared issues without escalating things into an emotional attack, staying fixed on solving the problem so that everyone can benefit. I suggested that we try and take that selfish approach by getting one nil up before the day starts. Maybe we do some exercise, maybe we do some yoga, or we do that all-important piece of our work so that we feel more tolerant and patient later in the day if we get knocked off course as the day starts to unravel. It's really important to get our own mindset and organisation right first before we set up that for our family. We also heard the role that humour and celebrations play in breaking boredom for both Mandela's team in prison for that extended period of 26 years and those Mars missions and the expeditions that are going on around the extreme environments in the world. And that we also need to consider the mental health of our social group and extended network to ensure that this crisis situation doesn't have a lasting negative consequence for those around us. We all need to take responsibility for that. And finally, that powerful image of the defiant message of hope and optimism that was written into the wet concrete of Robin Island for 26 years. They knew they would overcome the adversity and isolation and emerge stronger and more resilient as a result. So I really hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions as much as I've enjoyed making it. We've got over 850 of these video insights and micro lessons in our digital library. So if you're interested in these themes and you want to find out more about using them in your corporate learning, then please do get in touch at hello at sportingedge.com. Please do me one favour though. As a new podcast, we haven't reached the recommended status on Apple Podcast yet. So I'd love you to give it a rating and leave a comment to help us get there. I'd love you to share this across your network. I think these messages from Dennis Goldberg and Ahmed Katrada are absolute gold and I'd love them to be shared. So please connect with me on LinkedIn and Twitter. And I'd love to get these powerful messages out. So please do spread the word. As I mentioned, Ahmed Katrada sadly passed away a few years ago. But I hope he'd be proud that not only was he part of a courageous group of men that overthrew the apartheid regime, but this inspirational message is still being shared for all of us today. So stay safe. And until next time, from me and all the rest of the team at Sporting Edge, goodbye.